Welcome to Wisdom for Life, where we sift through philosophy to find practical advice that you can use in your everyday life. Hi, I'm Dan Hayes, and I'm joined by my co-host, Dr. Greg Sadler. And today we're talking about... Circles of connection and care, which may sound like kind of an abstract or abstruse topic, but it's something I think a lot of people can easily relate to. W- w- would you agree about that? Yeah, it's not a hard concept to understand, and it's, you know, in a, a plethora of different philosophical traditions, so there's a good chance that you've experienced it at some point, sometime in your life. Yeah, and you know what else is kind of cool about this is it's a way of thinking about things that you could actually visualize. So if you imagine to yourself a set of concentric circles, I mean, you could put whatever you want. It could be like the ski ball at the uh, Chuck E. Cheese, right? <laughs> the thing that we drop those balls into. Well, those are concentric circles. Or it could be anything else that you like that has some small circle in the beginning or in the middle, right? And then The you, solar system? Yeah, that works. Or a target, right? All there of these go. are are good visual analogies to it. So what's what's the basic idea here in talking about these circles? So like the basic thing is that we we grow up and we already have a natural affinity for, you know, ourselves and our parents and, you know, sometimes our siblings. Um <laughs> that changes all uh, the time, yeah. Right. Um but, you know, uh, for for most of us, we have this very deep ingrained care that we have for those people that are closest to us, and then we have certain levels of lesser care, but you still uh, appropriate or like uh, take into consideration the how your actions are going to reflect upon other groups that you're a part of. So, for example, your greater family, maybe your neighborhood, your city, your state. Uh, country or um you know potentially even the world or the universe yeah and sometimes these are you might say purely imaginary for a person i've i've known some people at least in the chicagoland area who have said that they've never actually gone outside of the chicago suburbs which was a little mind-blowing for me to find out that that was the case but they swore that that was the situation so their their connection to say Americans as a whole, I mean, it, 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 they could see it on TV or on the internet, but it would have to be kind of imaginary. And, and I think when it comes to like thinking about the world as such, that's, there's no way we can experience the world as a totality. So we, we might know people in foreign countries far away from us. I, you know, I routinely correspond with people literally on the other side of the world through, through Zoom as clients, but we, you know, we can't, visualize that circle except in our our imagination and you know so the, these these circles we learn about them you might say developmentally right we start out as kids we know our family unit maybe we see kids on the playground we get introduced to school and then we take social studies classes and they teach us about other places and hopefully we get some geography although i don't really know how how effective the geography teaching is today going by what my students seem to know about where things are, uh, and my kids too, I have to admit as well. But so when, when we learn these, um, you could call them, you know, circles, or we can think of them as in other ways as well. Um, what's, what's the really key takeaway from this? You mentioned affinity or affection, or, uh, maybe I, I missed the term, um, 
we've talked here about appropriation. Oh, right, right, yeah. And then we can talk about care and concern. Are we are we the kind of creatures that naturally only care about people who are close to us, close to us in in proximity? I'd say whoever we consider an in group and ah, that's uh, a good yeah, yeah. Um, and so that can you know change depending on like if you're a religion, you, if you if you are part of a religion, then you're usually the people that ascribe to at least your denomination, whatever happens to might be. Um, you usually consider those people your in groups. You know, hey, if you're a Packer fan, you've got an in group. That's if an interesting one because <laughs> have you have you ever looked at those uh, maps that they did uh, using Facebook of counties and people's um, fan affiliation? You know, it, it was very predictable. Like, if you're in the Chicagoland area, Bears fans, right? Mm-hmm. If you're out in Philly, well, Eagles fans. Um, pretty much all of New England is is uh, Pats fans. Patriots, and, yeah. Yeah. Um, but there's little, like, sprinklings all over the place. And there were, there were two teams that had a lot of um, counties in weird places that were the majority – not necessarily the majority, but the largest – um, number of, of people in that, that county belong to that fandom. And it was the Packers. And can you guess who the other one was? Uh, Cowboys? No, although that would make perfect sense like 20 years ago. Steelers. Yeah. Really? Oh. Weirdly enough, you know? Yeah. But, it, you know, that you're, you're onto something there because I've experienced this, you know, when I was living out in New York. Uh, you could find places that were Packers bars just about anywhere. My yeah. wife went to the one in New York City called Kettle of Fish, where it's literally a basement bar, and you go downstairs <laughs> and they're they're serving you know uh, summer sausage and and various Wisconsin beers and lots of cheese. And she said that when you go in, people are talking in their you know fairly hoity-toity New York accents, um, but they're all transplants. And within twenty minutes, they're they're talking like us. <laughs> Only yeah. for maybe even a little bit more uh, Wisconsin-y. And we went, to, uh, we went to a Packers bar in Boston, and it was quite interesting. Um, it, was, it was pretty packed. You know, everyone was, was there in, in Packers gear, and we were watching it. And so we had some sort of commonality. Let's bring this back to philosophy rather than mm-hmm. just talking about sports. What's going on there? You, you are sharing in some sort of common experience, and you have, um, you have some – views and some some commitments that you you also share in common and then you can look at the other person and even though you don't know them from adam you might buy them a a beer or you know um give them five when something good happens or you know and look at them as if they they matter as if they they are somebody who you care about this is uh I think it's been recalled other things from other people, but I like the way that Yuval Noah Harare refers to this concept as an intersubjective reality. And so it's a thing that affects reality just as much as an objective thing does, even though it only exists because we subjectively all agree upon it. So another example is um, money. Um, has value only because we agree upon it. Corporations are only entities because we agree that they are. There's no body of a company unless you consider the body the charter. But yeah. you could rip the charter, and that still would, you know, be able to maintain and hold property. Yeah, I like that idea. And 
it, it even works when there's opposition. Like you can be from an area and be, you know, like when you're say 18, 19, 20, and you're like, this place is terrible. I can't wait to get the hell out of here and get to some cool place. Right. But you're still from that place. You're still marked as belonging to that, that, uh, mm-hmm. intersubjective community. And then, you know, 20 years later, you can be like, man, it was so great back there. I think I'll move back there. <laughs> <laughs> and one that I found was really, um, encouraging was, uh, I used to ride a motorcycle a lot more and and to especially if you ride a cruiser you, know, you, you drive down the road and you there's a the thing called the high sign that you flash to every other biker that you go down it's kind of like a hey i'm in the group you're in the group yeah we're in the group interesting uh, and, does, and i don't really say, know much about that so does that work is it something that's like universally acknowledged or um it is at least in the United States, um, and of the subset of motorcyclists that are either touring or have cruisers, so you know, your Harley Davidson type, you know, black and chrome type thing, and the high sign is like this, and you hold it, I guess, on the left side, okay. um, down by your thigh, um, and that's just like the, you know, or sorry, I'm doing it wrong, it's this. Well, they can't, um, nobody can see it on uh, on the radio anyway, so... <laughs> Whatever. But yeah. for, for those people that might actually see this video recording. Um, and, uh, but yeah, it's, it's a, you know, a sign of solidarity. It's, you know, and then if you're um, like out, I went out to Sturgis one year and, and enjoyed that atmosphere and um, I pulled into a, you know, a campground and it was totally filled up and just kind of like, or around just like spotted someone that kind of looked like he had, you know, a bike kind of near me, and I went over to him and said, uh, like similar to mine, and and say, hey, like, like it's all filled up. Do you mind if I throw my tent up here? I'll be out right quick in the morning. It's like, yeah, whatever, no problem. It was like, whatever. That that was great, and it was like they had no reason to care about me besides the fact that we had both shared in this particular, you know, semi-dangerous uh, hobby. Yeah, and, and to use some other terms that we're we're gonna employ to to discuss this as we look at some classic discu- uh, classic interpretations of this, he exerted benevolence towards you, right? There, there's no need for him. He doesn't know you again, like like I said from Adam, um, and there's no like laws or rules that say, oh, you have to welcome the the person who's got a motorcycle and wants to camp next to you. He. Um, he did something nice for you. He, he uh, treated you as somebody who was worth having a connection to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about one yeah. of the early treatments of this. And I picked out um, Cicero, the great Roman orator and, and uh, lawyer as well and statesman, but also a philosopher. And in his book on duties, which he wrote to his son to try to give his son some idea about how he should ought, how he should think about behavior and then how he ought to regulate his behavior, he talks about justice. And for the Stoics who Cicero is drawing on, justice didn't just include following the rules and keeping your commitments and fulfilling duties and giving everybody what they they ought to have, it it goes further than that. It includes benevolence. You ought to try to exhibit kindness to people when when you can. And Cicero doesn't say you need to be kind to everybody. As a matter of fact, he's got some some, strictures about that. Don't be so kind that you wind up being destitute. But he does talk about 
this, this metaphor of circles. And he says that the closest circle is the one that we know the, the most, our friends, our family, those who are very close to us. And then we have those who live in the same neighborhood. So like you and I both being fellow Milwaukeeans, I guess you could say, would, would be within that circle, right? And then he I'll walk t- with you on that one. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we are both in, in, in the... It's, it's a bit of a bigger town, I think, than Cicero may have had in mind. Yeah. <laughs> but, so, so maybe we have to talk about neighborhoods then instead, right? Yeah. You're in River West. I'm down here in, in West Town. Um, so then maybe we have a larger one, which then is the greater community. And at, at a certain point, Cicero talks about the what he calls the political community, or in his view, the Roman at, at that time, Roman Republic is soon to become an empire within his lifetime as Caesar manages to take over, Cicero being on the wrong side of, of everything while that happens. Um, and so Cicero also then extends it out to the world, and he says, we can think about humanity as one gigantic circle. Now, Cicero's treatment prioritizes the the nation or the political community over the world. And he says that's actually the most important one. He also thinks that the friends and family one is really important. So, you know, neighbors, uh, you know, you should be good to them. You should connect with them in some way. But in, in a certain respect, it's more important to see them as fellow citizens than, than mm-hmm. anything else. And it seems to get at this kind of idea of either, you know, uh, the the clash between loyalty and, I guess, morality in a, like a more absolute sense. Yeah, that's like, true. Is, is, is morality just dependent upon those people that are closest to us? And can we, you know, say, oh, well, they're far away um, and thus morality doesn't extend to them? And yeah, how yeah, I we don't have to care them. about them. I mean, Cicero's kind of a stickler for that. He he even thinks that we owe enemies in wartime certain duties. Mm. And, you know, I, I guess in a way to be at war with somebody is to push them out of the circle. To say, mm. I'm not going to treat you with the same sort of care as I would other people. As a matter of fact, if I get a chance, I'm going to kill you or mm-hmm. maim you or uh, whatever else, shun you in some way. So... I, I think that at least with Cicero himself, there's a recognition of the humanity, even of the enemy, but it's a pretty limited recognition. <laughs> You're still going to try to kill him, you know. Um, if you take him prisoner, you can't do anything whatsoever you like to him, as opposed to other ancient uh, treatments of prisoners. But, um, and he also thinks you shouldn't lie to your enemies, which is a kind of a weird thing we might explore in some other discussion um, who was the um the roman general who uh returned to carthage after he was captured oh yeah yeah i i, I don't remember because he'd given his word right you're right he gave and everyone his word else that he... yeah and everyone else yeah. is like what are you doing this is this is insane <laughs> yeah yeah well someone's got standards apparently but, um, you know, there, there's something behind that. There's the, the recognition that, and this gets to the heart of it, this recognition that these, these wider circles include other people who we, we ought to be willing to 
extend the same sort of kindnesses, the same sort of respect, the same sort of duties as we would to those who we, we know that we should because we're closer to them. And, and, you know, you brought up this term loyalty as, as being something that could be in conflict. And, and, and I think that that's quite true. We, we often do experience this um, sense that, well, we ought to be treating other people better than we, we do or paying attention to them or taking them into account. But we feel a greater loyalty to those who are close to us. We, we feel a greater affinity. There's almost like a natural basis for, for that, I think, the ancients thought. So this is a great jumping off point into how do we get beyond that. And the Stoics had quite a few things to say about that, right? Yeah. So this is one of their topics of ideas called Ochiosis, which I believe translates from the Greek to appropriation. And the idea is that you're trying to appropriate into your concern those concerns of others. And so we're taking now the circles that we talked about in Cicero um, and uh, Heracles, uh, Stoic uh, philosopher, is uh, taking these concentric circles and say we should um, constrict or contract these circles into the idea that you should be thinking about even the most far-flung of the, you know, rational creatures. And so I, I love that they use this idea of rational creatures instead of humans, because that, you know, it allows us to have a, a greater, uh, like, quantity of people. Like, if there are, you know, other intelligent yeah. species in the universe, then we can include them, as well as, you know, some of our more intelligent non-humanoid um, Terrans. Um, you know, say maybe that's, you're. I was wondering if you were going to go there. That's yeah. That's, a, that's an interesting thought. Some of the high, what we often call the higher animals, right? Right. You um, know, so your octopi, your uh, dolphins, your a, you know, maybe apes. elephants. Yeah, apes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and it's hard to figure out where we should draw the line for that. I mean, should pigs go in there? They're pretty smart. Right. Um, you know. It's, they, it, is is it, there it, a consideration because they're really tasty? Well, that's <laughs> probably you know, that, not. That, that, <laughs> that does not hold water. Yeah, I mean, there's that old joke. I forget which comedian uh, brought that up, where he was saying the reason uh, this is a terrible idea, of course. The reason why we eat tuna and we don't eat dolphins is because the dolphins are cute, and by cute, <laughs> he, he means more than just like looking cute. They do all these cool things, and tuna. If you ever looked at them, they're not. They're not very appealing, so okay to eat them. I, there might be something to that. But then, you know, pick any animal. There's somebody who's found a way to eat it and eat just about every single part of the thing. Um, but in any case, yeah, I like that idea of extending the, the um, notion of rationality. Maybe elephants are to some degree rational. Maybe octopi is kind of a hard sell, <laughs> But they're pretty, they're pretty adaptive. They do a lot of problem solving. They they seem to have some sort of conception of self. So I don't know. Maybe they yeah. are rational. But so now let's talk about another thing with this. You mentioned there's this notion of contracting the circles, and this is this is a really interesting way to put it because I think the natural tendency for many of us would be to we start with our first circle, that of our parents, children, siblings, friends, and then we, we would say, oh, we should expand that outwards. Like we all become one big happy family, uh, mm -hmm. like they always tell us at work. <laughs> 
usually to get more work out of us. Um, oh, you're not, you're not employees. You're family. Exactly. Yeah. And family means you can like, you know, work them however you like and not give them, you know, proper conditions. We could have a whole thing of, about that. But so normally we, we think about like extending things outward. I should, I should extend the same, um, desire for the good of the other i should extend the same consideration i should extend the same respect that i do i have here in this small circle out to bigger circles so why do you think heracles says no take the big circles and bring them inside instead of saying like let's flow this this outward do you think it's a more effective way of of thinking about it bringing people close in to you yeah and just think about like how you bring people into those closer circles, you know, you have friends and you, you spend time with them, you bring them closer to you. And so I, I feel like there is a, a physical connection of, of how we create close relationships is to bring them closer to us physically, except for in these times. And, uh, oh, true. Yeah. Like six feet away. <laughs> yeah. It's close enough. Yeah. Um, and, and so, you know the the metaphor works together easier if we're thinking about you know bringing people closer together even if though they're not physically connected yeah. closer together and now heracles talks about like visualizing this right this is this is a stoic practice it's not just a, an idea it's something that people would would try to do on a daily basis or perhaps in occasions of stress when they're tempted to think of, about everybody else as being a bunch of jerks that they shouldn't care about right <laughs> Right. Yeah. So you you you'd sit and meditate on this. You know, maybe in the morning or the evening, depending, and um, and just like you know, meditate on the thought of like, who should I be thinking about in uh the things that I do? My actions have consequences, and I need to be mindful of what those consequences actually do to other people. Yeah. Uh, regard. I guess regardless of who they are. Yeah, and it could lead us to thinking about not just negatively, you know, how we can affect them, but what we might do for them as well, what we need to send to them or keep in mind. Um, who do you want to talk about next? Do you, we, we've got quite a few other... Um, yeah, I think we can definitely touch... Uh, I don't know, you can either stay in the Western tradition or we can go East. Let's go East. Okay, so let's go uh, Buddhism. And uh, meta meditation uses a, a very similar practice, um, and it's you know uh, meta translates as uh, benevolence or loving kindness, and has a similar idea of trying to extend the I guess the emotional feeling of of loving kindness or benevolence to people that we might not as easily interact with in that same mindset. And so if you can extend this feeling, then it allows us easier to make decisions on them if they're um, in that like circle that you consider that you can at least feel for. Yeah. And, you know, it's really interesting if you think about people often bring up similarities between Stoicism and, and Buddhism. And we do have this similarity of practices between oikiosis and meta meditation. Um, but I think there's a couple other similarities as well. I, I think that a lot of people are surprised when they find out that Stoicism 
thinks that, you know, compassion and affection for others and, um, you know, reaching out to them would be a, a good thing because they, they view stoicism as being primarily about like protecting the self and not having emotional attachments. And I think there's a similar thing with Buddhism too. There's, there's sort of like a, um, simplified way of looking at Buddhism that's that's off base that views it as well just avoid attachments to anything right the whole goal mm. is to to slip out of that and yet the you know the largest group of Buddhists um, the Mayahana Buddhists uh, the various schools associated with them think that that this is is quite important and even some Vajrayana Buddhists um, incorporate this as as well so there's there's a similar we could call it um, misconception of mm -hmm. Buddhism and Stoicism coming in from from the outside and, and maybe from you know sketches of them that that were not entirely um, well grounded right you know the I guess Within Stoic circles, there's people that use the distinction little s versus big s Stoic. Oh, so yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're talking about the actual Stoic philosophy, use you know the big s to capitalize it, it's a proper noun, whereas uh, you know, our, our little s's, you know, think of um, Spock from Star Trek. Yeah. He's your, your, you know... Unemotional. Uh, yeah. Dispassion. Purely logical, yeah. you, know, you know, little s Stoic, and it's a, you know... Uh, Oh, what is that? A, a straw stoic. Yeah. Do you think there's? Do you think you could say something similar with Buddhism? Like, obviously, it's not going to be uppercase and lowercase B Buddhism, yeah. but that there's a um, yeah. It's a trope. Yeah, that's a that's a good way to put it. I mean, with this with the stoicism thing, what ended up happening was stoic philosophy, which had been studied for a long time, became. Um, connected with intellectual culture and then people stripped away a lot of the important elements of it and focused primarily on the toughness, the unemotionality and, uh, you know, a few other things. And that became the lowercase s stoicism that we're, we're talking about here by about, you know, the early 19th century, I would say. Um, and so then, then people start using it with a, a lowercase s in, in discussions, just talking about like, you know, uh, not showing pain as, as being stoic. Um, I don't know that we have something exactly correlative to that in, in Buddhism. You know, another similarity, uh, let me bounce this idea off of you. So you could say that why should a person do this widening of the circles or contracting of the circles or, you know, trying to, you know, think about people that, that one is not directly connected with as being part of one's circle. And, and there's answers to it that are what we could call deontological that is based in duty. Oh, you should just do that. That's the right thing to do. Right. Mm -hmm. And you, you do get that in Buddhism and you do get that in stoicism, but you also get what we can call a eudaimonistic that is oriented towards our own well-being or happiness mm -hmm. attitude about it as well. If you're a stoic, why should you do this? You know, why should you take on the work of trying to see your neighbors who are probably kind of a pain to you at times as being part of your family who you feel affection towards because it's a good thing for you to do ultimately. It makes you a better person and not like a better person in the sense that you can like lord it over them passive aggressively and say, see how nice I am to you. But mm. it makes you, it leads you towards what, what eudaimonia, happiness or fulfillment or, um, you know, good spirit. Yeah. What, what that actually is, which is being the kind of person who actually can be 
benevolent to others. And Buddhism, okay, there's there's a very different conception of the self, namely that ultimately there is no self at the bottom. <laughs> so that's different mm-hmm. from the Stoicism. But it's still good for you to, to engage in meta meditation. Why? Well, um, you know, tying in with Buddhist metaphysics and reincarnation, it helps you get rid of some of your, your karma, for one thing. But I think there's also a similar thing. It, it helps you to feel better in your life. It helps you to flourish in, in some ways, right? To be connected there, to other. Go ahead. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. Like, there's actually lots of research, uh, especially being doing, uh, done now, um, about like uh, how you know, volunteering or giving gifts um, make you feel. And, and one of those things that mm. it does is it um, makes you, uh, you actually feel better from giving like you you and it lasts longer than yeah. to like buy yourself something so uh there's kind of this idea of like treat yourself and and oh, like treat yourself yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and i feel like maybe that's maybe a little much you know like you definitely need to like make sure that you are getting enough sleep and and like maintaining yourself but um from a if you're just looking for having a, a happy life, uh, buying yourself over uh, buying someone else something, um, yeah. you're, you're probably going to have a more enjoyable life doing the latter. Now, do you think the motivation of the gift buying and gift giving to another makes a difference in it? Um, so like, for example... Minorly. I, what's that? I said minorly. Oh, Really? So yeah. if it, so if I get you a gift and I'm doing it because I'm hoping to get a gift in return from you, like maintaining oh. that reciprocal relation, mm-hmm. or if I'm buying you a gift because I want to show off, or um, we can think of all sorts of not really on point um, mm-hmm. reasons for, for buying gifts, as opposed to just wanting something good for you and saying, oh, wow, mm-hmm. this would be really great for Dan. Um, he's been wa- he's been talking about this book that he hasn't been able to get for a long time. Here's a copy. I'm getting this for him, right? Mm. Um, would, does the motivation make a difference? I guess in the, I, I the jumped the gun a little bit because I was first thinking that you were going to say, like, does it matter that um, I'm going to feel better about this, or if I if I'm just looking for oh. the other person, which like you know minorly, so, but if you, if if you're doing the what you would ask to yeah. the um, does that person is he trying to show off or something? Yeah, yeah. I think you know uh, the motivation like really skews it as well as you know a part of it is that you're trying to elicit some enjoyment in the recipient, and if the recipient despises the thing, then yeah. your enjoyment of it decreases and so if you get something that someone really wants but you say like well yeah and i you know had to skin 12 monkeys to get it and you're all of a sudden you recoil because (laughs) you think that is yeah yeah i was like why why i had Um, i had to to pull this out of the hands of a, a homeless person for whom it was the only possession yeah that'd be pretty pretty awful wouldn't it right um and and so now now it feels like you 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 given them like this false hope and you know, they can't even look at the thing uh, You've given them a poisoned gift right yeah yeah yeah, uh, yeah I, I don't think that has the same feel but i can't point to any particular studies that i've read well 
you know, we, we, we did that entire um, show a long time ago that people might want to tune into about giving um, for River West Radio, right? And we explored yeah. some of those issues in there, particularly what happens when you give somebody a gift that they really don't want. Mm-hmm. How that sometimes that's worse than giving them nothing. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, let's should we should we uh, talk about um, utilitarianism? Sure. And we can jump back to if we have more time, we can jump back to any of the stuff that we didn't get to. Um, yeah. So utilitarianism is a philosophy that officially begins in the 18th century with Jeremy Bentham. But it, the, the, the general idea had been around for quite a long time. And you don't just find it in Western philosophy. As a matter of fact, in Chinese philosophy, the Moist school, who were very influential for a while, but unfortunately died out, they were effectively utilitarians, um, just you know, in a, in a very different context. And one of the things that Bentham stressed was the importance of ben- what he called benevolence, meaning um, this this disposition to, as he put it, to take pleasure in other people feeling pleasure. Because everything for the utilitarians at first was about pleasure and pain; they were they were hedonists. And so, if I give you that that gift, and let, let's not make it a book, let's let's find something a little bit more. Uh, relatable for for people. Uh, what's uh, what's what's your favorite food? Oh, or something that uh, you'd like to get, say, in the mail. You know, um, I really very much enjoy Dragon's Milk out of Left Hand Brewery in Michigan. Okay, it's kind of beer, right? So yeah, it's it's a, a dark, creamy, delicious porter. <laughs> Okay, I can relate to that definitely because I, I like that sort of stuff as well. So I, I order it online and it, it arrives at your door and nobody steals the package and you you know you, you get it inside and it's got a little note, I suppose, or something like that. It says, enjoy, right? Now, mm-hmm. if I... You know, if I feel neutral about it, that's not benevolence. That's, you know, maybe I did it for some other reason. Um, but if I actually take delight in your delight, that's that's what Bentham called benevolence. So there's an affective part to it. It's not just the doing, it's, it's the motivation. The opposite of that is malevolence, where I enjoy your pain, or when you actually enjoy something, I feel bad about that because I would prefer you to, to not feel good about it. And along with benevolence would also be um, you know, if you are feeling uh, trouble or pain or something like that, I don't, I don't necessarily feel the same thing. It's not like emotional contagion, but I feel bad that you feel bad, mm-hmm. right? So um, Bentham thought that this is a really important motive in human behavior, and he talked about the difference between what he called particular benevolence, which is really easy to feel towards those who we care about, you know, friends, family, uh, maybe our neighbors. Uh, And then he talked about universal or general benevolence. And he said that the, the problem with most people is not that they're not benevolent at all. It's that they're only benevolent with those with whom they've got some sort of connection. And they don't really care about how other people are being affected. And so he wanted to try to promote universal benevolence as how human beings ought to view themselves, you know, comport mm-hmm. themselves, the way they ought to behave. 
And you know, there's a lot of transformations that happen. There's, you know, some other important utilitarian philosophers, John Stuart Mill, well worth reading. Um, he, he refines it a bit. This guy, Henry Sidgwick, who nobody really reads anymore except us moral philosophers, but it was really worth reading. He does it as well. And then we get down to somebody who's, who's kind of considered to be one of the bad boys of contemporary philosophy by many people, Peter Singer. <laughs> um, and I guess, you know, he's considered to be that because he's a consistent utilitarian and he really does think that we ought, the utilitarians think that we ought to take everybody's outcomes into consideration, good or bad, when we're making decisions. Now he has a book called The Expanded Circle. So, or the, not The Expanded, Expanding Expanding Circle. circle. <laughs> yes. Expanded would be a you know fait accompli. We we finished it. it mm -hmm. It's a a project for for the contemporary times. Um, this so, is you know. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. So like part of this is you know he he is trying to make an argument for why we ought to care about all people on the world in this you know utilitarian idea and so first he talks about like you know caring for children and like you uh see a child uh drowning in a pond and say the pond is only three foot deep and you have zero chance of having anything harmful happen to you for going in and sh uh saving this child but you have like 300 dollars shoes on or you know a suit or oh, dress, right. however yeah, yeah. You, you want and you have zero time to take these things off in order to say them. You are will ruin these things, so you are giving up $300 of value in order to save the child. And basically, everyone responds to this uh, all with the, well, yeah, of course I'll like go and save the child. It's it's so easy. It's it's really like a, a almost ingrained reaction. Like you, you see a child, you save it. And so yeah. the question is, he then poses, once people usually answer in the affirmative, is, okay, well, then will you send a check right now for $300 to save a child on the other side of the world? And all of a sudden, they get in this moral quandary. And it's like, well, if it only takes $300 to save a child, then why am I not doing that right now? Yeah. Uh, and, and you can make an, a stronger argument. You can say, it doesn't even take three, $300. It could just be $30. It could mm -hmm. be $3. Are you willing to do that? And, and a lot of people are like, eh, yeah, I don't know. You know, mm -hmm. ask me next week, you know, and then they, they never get around to it. Right. So, right. so how does this tie in with expanding circles then? What, what is so, the general idea there? So the general principle here is like we are, are predisposed to caring for those that are closest to us, either like relationally or just even physically. And you know, you have lots of experiences of people, you know, dropping a hat to go into dangerous situations to save strangers because they're in need at that moment. Um, and and so that, you know, over the course of human history, people have expanded the circles of beings whose interests they are willing to value similar to their own. So this is our talk about of our in-groups that we talked about earlier, either packers or motorcyclists or yeah. you know, Christians or whatever you want to put into there. Um, and then, you know, altruism. He then argues that altruism, while directed at one small circle of family, tribe, or even nation, is not moral. 
but it only becomes but it does become moral when it is applied to wider circles because you are doing a, a process of generalizing or universalizing this altruistic tendency so there's no longer a a divide between oh i should do good for some people but not for others if if the rule is that you should care for people then you should care for all people and not just some people and, and uh- yeah, well, please. We should specify too that when we when we say that it it's not moral, that doesn't mean that it's immoral, right? Mm-hmm. So caring for um, my my neighbor who I formed this you know connection with, and they live right down the hall, and maybe walking their dog when they can't walk their dog, that doesn't become a bad act because of that. It just doesn't have the same uh, moral content that doing something for other people who I'm not not as close to would have, right? Right. Um, there's a... Oh, what is it? Super... Oh, super erogatory. Oh, yes, there we go. That's the word yeah, of the day. Yeah. Super erogatory. So a thing that is good to do, but not bad not to do. Yeah, and, and oftentimes... So we're getting into a little bit of technical stuff here, but we, we sometimes talk about strict and non-strict duties, and the non-strict get called supererogatory, meaning that they go beyond what you can ask for. The, the rogation is asking and super is, is above. So, you know, if, if I'm saving the child, all I got to do is save the kid, right? And then maybe give them mouth-to-mouth if that's necessary or CPR if I'm qualified to do that. I don't have to necessarily like buy them a new set of clothes because their clothes are wet. That would be super erogatory. Yeah. Be nice. Yeah. yeah or or yeah. take them for ice cream. You know, that's not yeah. necessary, <laughs> but it would be a nice thing to do. We, we should probably get to talking about our. Um, well, right before that, I just want to finish up the this, this thing because his, sure. the last part of this book is, is why you know, there's usually this, idea or this like he kind of sets up as a a bit of a dichotomy or old dichotomy that he's trying to break of the you know rational reasons for caring versus emotional reasons for caring and he says that these aren't actually um in conflict for us it's our emotional uh reasons which you know give us this idea that we should care for each other and it is our a reason that um, allows us to rise above our base level of concern and extend that uh, emotional caring and instinct of caring to a larger group of people. So, so ideally, we wouldn't have to choose between emotion and reason. Those would be integrated with each other in, in our response. They would play off of each other, right? Correct. Yeah. I think that's a very attractive way to look at it. And going back to thinking about the Stoics, um, I think that's that's perfectly in line with their point of view on that as well. Um, so he's kind of a fusing, I guess, Kant and Hume here. Yeah. Well, he's overcoming Hume, right? Hume, yeah. re- reason can only be the slave of the passions. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and, and Kant was a little bit... Actually, I won't say a little bit. Kant was far too <laughs> rationalistic. <laughs> you know? Yeah, the passions, you know, have have no effective role in in, in morality for Kant. So, yeah, that's a, that's a really good way to put it, and that's consistent with the other utilitarians as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, we're getting um, a little bit short on time. Do we want to skip over the 
the question and spend a bit more time on the practice this time around? Uh, what do you think? Um, I think we can spend just a, like a four minutes on the question. Okay. So, you know, one of the things that comes up whenever people talk about this, these, these circles, uh, especially for us Americans, is should we, shouldn't we care more about our country? Um, you know, after all, America is supposed to be this, this wonderful beacon, a city on a hill, as, as uh, one of the Puritans put it. Um, although, of course, that came with responsibilities that many people <laughs> overlook in that sermon from John Winthrop. Um, so should, should we, do we have an obligation to care mostly about our country, sort of like what Cicero was saying, or should we care about people more? People both in the wider circle outside of our country, outside of our large in-group, mm-hmm. and people within the, the country. Um, and there's a lot of ways we can, we can approach this, I think. Um, what are your thoughts, Dan? It's it, it's a really big question, and and there's you know the distinction between like what is my nation? Is my nation my like our our cultural ties? Is it like the political structure? Is it you know uh, a a national identity, or is it something you know a little bit more strong like nationalism? And and where do these things? lead us down some negative paths. Yeah. And, you know, I think that one, one aspect of uh, the way Americans look at things, what's often called exceptionalism has not been very good for us in, in the, the long run. There are some, some ways in which we can say there, you know, we've excelled. Um, and, and I'm not just thinking about like, you know, outproducing people or stuff like that. I'm thinking about some, times and, and places where we've done really good work. And, um, but there is a tendency to say, you know, USA over everything. And then it's not really much different than someone in some other country saying, my country is the best, my people right or wrong, um, you know, get out of our way. And we, we don't have much recourse when, when other people say those sorts of things, other than to say, well, we're tougher and stronger and have more money right now. That won't last forever, though. And, and one of the things, and I was talking with you about this earlier, there's a song by um, the composer Jan Sibelius, which, which has become the Finnish national anthem. And it's, it's a really wonderful song that, that I um, like quite a bit, in part because I won't read the, the actual lyrics here, but he talks about how great his nation is, how wonderful it's, it's skies are, bl- you know, bluer than the ocean. And, you know, it's, it's just as good as it can possibly get. But then he says at each time that he, he brings that up, but other people love their country just as much as I do. Their countries are good as well. And I think that there can be a recognition of the importance of the homeland, uh, what the Latin, the, the, in Latin they call the patria, the, the you know, mother country or, fa- or fatherland or whatever you want to call it, that gives it its, its right value without denigrating everybody else. And, and maybe that's where it goes wrong. When, it, when it's USA is the best because we beat the Russians at hockey or, uh, you know, um, although, you know, the Miracle on Ice was, was pretty cool, yeah, I have to admit, um, having <laughs> seen it. You know. um, but when it becomes about denigrating others, 
and asserting power over them and, and exploiting them, that's when it goes wrong, right? And, and maybe we can say this not just about nationalism, we could say this about families. What, if I prioritize my own family to the detriment of the other families in my neighborhood, something is going wrong there, right? Right. I feel like this brings up that, you know, uh, zero-sum versus positive-sum games, once again, that we've spoken about oh, a couple yeah, times yeah. here. And just the idea that if if you're thinking of national nations as a zero-sum game, then my uh, ga- nation's gain can only come at your nation's detriment. And yeah. to think of it as a more positive-sum game that we can both have and build better nations, and we can... It doesn't mean that your nation has to, you know, suffer um, in order for us to be good. Yeah. And, you know, maybe the jockeying for position in that way comes from an emphasis on the wrong kinds of goods that, that aren't, you know, totally without value. But, but you know, think about honor, for example, um, or, or, you know we could mm-hmm. say call social status. Now think about it between countries. If one country is, is, taking more than its fair share of that, then everybody else has to have less. Um, and why would they be tempted to do that? Because they're all about that. You know, you think about the prickliness of, of certain countries that are quite insecure about their, their own value, you know, and they have to jockey with other countries. And, and again, we could say this about neighborhoods. We could say this about cities, you know, we could say this about right. families. Yeah. New York and Boston. Uh yeah, that's true. Yeah. Well, and, and we have our own rivalry here, right, with yeah. Milwaukee and Chicago. Yeah. So, I think we should move on to practice here in order to get through it. And not take um, off any Chicago people because, you know, we oh, obviously yeah. take Milwaukee's side. <laughs> <laughs> um, we can build a better world together. <laughs> so our, our practice um, here is going to be um, meta-meditation that we spoke on uh, just a little bit, and it comes from uh, the Buddhist tradition. And so the the practice, as I spoke about earlier, is the idea of um, bringing to mind um, someone that you have zero uh, difficulty in like feeling love for, and like maybe it's a parent or a spouse or a child, and someone that like you you think about, and it's like immediately it's just like you know, flowers and rainbows or whatever you want to say, you know, every, every, there's always a little bit of tarnish, but you know, it's, it's easy to love them regardless. And, um, and to take this and like, try to cultivate that feeling to like really elicit that in your mind's eye. Um, and, and then you start to think about, you know, other ones, you know, people that are neutral to you. And you try to maintain the same level of, you know, love, this emotional feeling of love, and you try to, you know, just associate it with these neutral ones. And then you do it for those people who are difficult, those people that, you know, that are rude or annoying, busy-bodied, arrogant, self-righteous, viceful, neglectful, war profiteers, fence-sitters, naysayers, charlatans, those who are unkind, accusers and rebukers, uh, liars, and those that are just unhappy. And you want to try to, you know, still elicit this, this feeling. And, you know, depending upon how you're feeling with you, 
you also want to think about you in this point because mm. sometimes it's hard to feel love for ourselves and this is a good practice to you know encourage ourselves to have a little bit more i guess self-esteem to love each other to be you know more accepting of ourselves in this moment and so then, let me ask then how does one hold on to that feeling and you might say transfer it to these people that you don't you don't normally feel that feeling towards mm-hmm. a lot of people would say I, I can't change my feelings but isn't is is it possible to do that well it seems like from at least my personal experience and from the um writings i've read about this is that you know emotions linger and if you can yeah. elicit an emotion of something that's really loving, then it's going to linger and you're not going to immediately turn to anger when you're talking to someone who is really negative around you, that you will actually still have that uh, you know, positive experience. And are you, Greg, are you still there? I am, yes. yeah. Okay, you've moved. Okay. Um, and the... The last thing is to ex- try to uh, expand this feeling to you know all beings, you know, rational beings or humans, whoever you're going to uh, cut the line for. Yeah. So I imagine this takes a lot of practice to do well, right? Yeah. I don't know. I think it took uh, three or four times me doing this to like start getting it to like feel like it's having a little bit of effect, you know, it's going to take more to, you know, think of that person that you've hated since you were six. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And go like, Oh yeah. Like, you know, that guy, he's great. You know, (laughs) you might not even say he's great, but like, at least you're not feeling that, that immediate negative reaction to even thinking about this person. So it's 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 affective and it's also cognitive, but it wouldn't result in you going out and like seeking them out and and doing something to improve their lives, right? Or could it en- encompass that or lead to that sort of thing? I, th- I think you could definitely lead to it if you are removing your negative affect towards someone to at least to a neutral thing. You know, you're no longer avoiding the person in even in the first place you you know if you really dislike someone then you're like oh that person's here i'm getting the <laughs> heck out of here yeah well that's that's uh, that's you i'd have to watch the reaction of like going up to them and and starting a conflict myself because i'm a bit more <laughs> thematic in that respect that is driven by that that part of ourselves that Tends to seek out conflict that way. Now, you, you mentioned um, you can apply this to yourself as you're doing it. So would you, you know, a lot of us like ourselves too much, you might say. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe there's parts of ourselves that we, we don't like. We recognize ourselves as being among the difficult people, not necessarily mm-hmm. to ourselves, although we, we often do get it in our own way, but to other people. So how, how does meta meditation apply that you you then turn that that affection or love towards the bad part of yourself that you you recognize as problematic 
Yeah, so like for example, you you see that you're you're not good at something, and you know, maybe Ooh. you you hold that as a uh, something that you would really like to improve upon, but like maybe you're just you're just not a natural basketball player, but you know all of your friends love to play basketball, and so you go and play basketball with them, but you really stick at playing basketball, <laughs> and so you you feel bad that you can't you know participate fully with these people that you care about. And and it's kind of like this idea of forgiving yourself and still feeling love at yourself, even though that you failed at certain things. That you know that failure isn't like the only thing that matters about you. You know that's that's interesting. I mean, they're this, going back to the Stoics and talking about connections between these. So the Stoic uh, concentric circles things doesn't have that, but Stoicism in other parts does have that forgiveness of, of self and not, not letting yourself off the hook for the, the, the problematic aspects, but also mm-hmm. recognizing that you can change them, that maybe they're not as bad as you, you think. Um, the only really bad thing is, is being a vicious person, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. The Buddhists don't quite use the terminology of virtuous and vicious there. Yeah, in that exact sense. But yeah. Um. So you know, and just to you know, back this up. You know, with you know, besides a couple thousand years of uh, Buddhist practice, <laughs> <laughs> there's there's actually been uh, quite a number of studies, and there uh, one of them is um, a, a meta study of the effects of loving kindness meditation on positive emotions. A meta analytic review by Professor Zheng from the Hong Kong University and their findings from this was a 2015 study and they, their findings were that um, the, from a, a medium-sized improvement to daily positive emotion with meditation on a loving-kindness aspect of meta and this is having a greater effect than practices with focus on just compassion hmm. um, and so the length of this meditation did not affect the magnitude of the positive impact. So you don't have to spend a whole lot of time but you on have this. to do it. Yeah. Yeah, very interesting. Well, um, any any final thoughts before we Well, you we... got a, a couple of books here really quick. Yeah, so Cicero's On Duties, which you can find easily online, is a great place to look. You'd want to look in book one. Peter Singer, we mentioned already, The Expanding Circle, really great book. Um, you can get Heracles, uh, the translations of his stuff uh, in a book called Heracles the, the Stoic. Um, any, any particularly good thing on meta meditation that you can think of? Not offhand, unfortunately. Okay. That study, well, maybe. And so we'll close out here with an African proverb. If you want to go fast, go alone.